But I'm thrilled to be here. I want to begin by thanking the Public International Law Discussion Group uh, for having me, and thank everyone at ELEC who, over the past several months, have been so generous in sharing with me their ideas and research and time. Uh, I feel very lucky to be working with all of you, so thank you. And most importantly, I want to thank Federica de Alessandra, as Hannes mentioned, who unfortunately couldn't be here with us today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Federica is Executive Director of the, the Program on International Peace and Security, and all of the things that I'm going to be talking about today uh, arise from our work and research together. Um, and before getting started, Federica did ask me to share a few things about what uh, IPS is doing to kind of uh, put this discussion in context. So the program actually has a number of ongoing projects one of which is focusing on building permanent capacity to investigate international crimes, so following the establishment of the IIIMs for Myanmar and Syria, as well as our flagship work on atrocity prevention, which is funded by the uh, UK Research and Innovation Strategic Priority Fund, uh, of which my own work is part. And our work in this area really aims to expand and sustain the atrocity prevention agenda by bringing stakeholders together to look at how to institutionalize prevention theory in law and operationalize prevention in practice. Um, so if you have any questions about the program and the projects that we're working on, I know Federica and I are always happy to, to discuss uh, at any time. So the subject of my remarks today uh, is the duty of states to prevent atrocity crimes. And the duty to prevent really often gets unfairly politicized and distilled to a few key issues. Um, for example, the issue of military intervention and whether states are ever entitled to use force to prevent atrocity crimes. And you'll notice I said distilled rather than simplified because, of course, answering that question is not simple and it's deeply, deeply important. But the duty to prevent really often gets kind of reduced to that question and then accepted or rejected on that basis. And alternatively, uh, the duty to prevent is really often dismissed out of hand just on the basis of modern realities. So people will look around and they'll point to the existence of atrocity crimes in Syria and Myanmar and Yemen and they'll kind of dis discount the concept in the same way that people sometimes now even grimace when you say the phrase never again. It's obviously happened again. Obviously, states aren't preventing mass atrocities. So what is there really to this obligation? But over the next 40 or so minutes, I want to set aside some of these more contentious political debates and really look at what the law requires. So my goal today is to just have a fruitful conversation about the content of the duty to prevent and then to make some arguments for further development in this area of law. Specifically, to provide a framework for our discussion, I'm going to be examining the content of the duty to prevent, first looking under treaty-based law, then looking at customary international law. And then I'll be making some remarks about the ICJ's most recent provisional measures decision in the case between the Gambia and Myanmar. I'm talking about what's at stake for the duty in that case. I'll then draw some conclusions about the gaps that I see in this area of law, because there's many. And finally, I hope to conclude with some arguments for why I think further development is so badly needed in this area. So I should say at the outset that my work and research in this area is very much a work in progress. 
Federica and I are still putting together arguments for purposes of our paper, so I'm definitely not coming at you today with all the answers. Um, I'm actually thrilled to be here because I could so benefit from your feedback, particularly in terms of further development for the law. As you'll see also, one of my proposals draws on international environmental law, which is not my primary area of practice. So for any of you who are experts in that area, I will be very grateful for your feedback during the discussion. The perspective that Federica and I have tried to come at this issue with is not necessarily to ascertain liability following the commission of atrocity crimes. That's certainly part of it. But really to assess how would you put the duty to prevent into practice, particularly for the well-intentioned states that are actually looking to fulfill their preventive obligations. Um, there's, there's not many, but there are a few. Um, if you were advising one of those states that was seeking to fulfill its preventive obligations, what specifically would you advise it to do? So it's not just about litigation following commission, it's really about operationalizing the obligation for states. And I think that it is really by coming at it from that perspective that you get a sense of just how much further the law needs to develop. So one of the first things that needs to be said is that part of the difficulty in articulating preventive obligations lies in the fact that the crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes are, are premised on really fragmented legal frameworks, and each crime holds its own distinct status under the law. So the duty to prevent is not at all a homogenous obligation, but really is rather a complex interplay of legal structures and responsibilities. This presents some complications. Not only does it complicate my own analysis, but again, if you're coming at this from the perspective of a state, there's a significant chance you're not going to know exactly which atrocity crime is going to be committed further down the road. So again, if you're trying to operationalize those preventive obligations, but each crime has its own separate criteria for when it's triggered, exactly what it requires, it's gonna be really difficult to put that obligation into practice. So to get a better sense of the gaps in the legal framework, I find that it's necessary to really take apart the separate legal frameworks and then put them back together to see where they overlap and where are the gaps between them. Second, I should say that, of course, we have a firmly established prohibition in international law against the commission of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. But I want to be really clear at the outset between the uh, difference on uh, the status of the norm prohibiting each of these crimes and the status of the duty to prevent them. Just because the prohibition on commission is a peremptory norm does not necessarily give us clarity as to the status of the duty to prevent those crimes. So the status of that preventive obligation is what I'm concerned with here today. So to provide a framework for our discussion, I want to begin by briefly examining what we know about the legal basis for the duty to prevent atrocity crimes. I'll begin by looking at the treaty-based duty to prevent, and I'll start with one that probably you all know well, and that's the Genocide Convention. The Genocide Convention actually has several elements that relate to prevention, but the key provision, which you probably know, is the general obligation of states to prevent genocide set forth in Article 1. And that provides that the contracting parties confirm that genocide is a crime under international law which they undertake to prevent and punish. 
And this duty, as you also probably know, received its most comprehensive interpretation in the ICJ's Bosnian genocide case. By way of recap, the ICJ held that the Genocide Convention places states under positive obligations of prevention. The obligation is of one of conduct, not of result. So states don't necessarily need to succeed in preventing genocide, but they have to employ the means reasonably available to them to try. And most notably, the obligation is not limited to a state's territorial jurisdiction. It applies to a state wherever it may be acting or maybe wherever it may be already acting or may be able to act in ways appropriate to meeting its obligation. Now, one of the most innovative features of the ICJ's interpretation of the duty to prevent is that it, it, it held that the duty is governed by a due diligence standard with the extent of the obligation premised on a state's capacity to influence. This, as you probably know, is one of the uh, most famous paragraphs from the Bosnian Genocide Opinion, stating that capacity to influence depends on the links between the particular state and the genocidal actors in question. And the extraterritorial nature of the obligation really marks a significant departure from other due diligence obligations, which generally requires states to just ensure respect for certain rights for those under its jurisdiction. By the ICJ describing the obligation as extraterritorial in nature, but then basing the extent of its application on a set of legal and factual criteria, the court really took a novel approach to the duty to prevent. As one commentator put it, it can really best be summed up by the idea that the more a state can do, the more it must do. Now, importantly, the duty to prevent genocide arises at the moment that a state learns of the existence of a serious risk that genocide will be committed. According to the ICJ, from that moment onwards, if a state has available to it means likely to deter those suspected of preparing a genocide, a state must do what it can to prevent under the due diligence standard. Yet while the duty to prevent arises at the moment that a state learns of the existence of a serious risk, the ICJ held that a state can only be held responsible for breaching the obligation if genocide was actually committed. In support, the court referenced the ILC articles on the responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts, which provides that the breach of an international obligation requiring a state to prevent an event occurs when that event occurs and extends over the entire period during which the event continues and is not in conformity with that obligation. Nevertheless, the court said this obviously does not mean that the obligation to prevent only comes into being when the perpetration of genocide commences. It would be absurd, uh, it said, since the whole point of the obligation is to prevent or attempt to prevent the occurrence of the act. Now, a number of commentators have pointed out that there's really some inconsistency to this. The idea that we cannot evaluate a state's compliance with the duty to prevent genocide until a genocide has occurred is kind of at odds with the notion of an obligation of conduct. In some ways, it's really a contradiction to deem the obligation to prevent one of conduct, but then condition it on the occurrence of a particular event. Some commentators have asked why it isn't possible to hold a state responsible if they manifestly breach their obligation to prevent, 
even if the event was averted at the last moment, perhaps due to the intervention of third parties. This, in my view, is one of the weakest parts of the ICJ's interpretation of the duty to prevent. Because an objective state of facts can be proven as to the existence of a serious risk of genocide being committed in a given region or city or town, and the existence of that risk should tr trigger preventive action regardless of whether genocide ultimately occurs. And by requiring that genocide actually occur before the duty can be breached, we foreclose the possibility that failure to prevent can be challenged before the bloodshed begins. It's also important to note that the duty to prevent is considered an obligation, uh, both an obligation erga omnes and erga omnes partes. In the recent provisional measures decision in the Myanmar case uh, just last month, the ICJ held that that nature of the obligation was enough without more to permit standing for the Gambia, even though the Gambia made no assertion that it was actually injured or affected in any particular way by the genocide it alleged. The Gambia is actually the first state to ever invoke standing under the Genocide Convention solely on the basis of its erga omnis partes nature, although it has happened before under other treaties. This has some really significant implications for the duty to prevent which uh, I'll return to later. Now, before moving to the treaty law basis for the duty to prevent crimes against humanity, um, oh, hold on just one sec, I think we can. Yeah, so moving on to the treaty law basis for the duty to prevent crimes against humanity, um, we can be a little more brief here because of course there is to date no multilateral treaty on that crime. But we can't be quite as brief as you might think because there are a few complicating features I should point out. First, some crimes which constitute crimes against humanity are prevented under other multilateral treaties, like the Convention Against Torture. But of course, that leaves huge gaps for crimes that aren't encompassed under any other treaty, and many aren't. In addition, since 2014, the International Law Commission has been in the process of putting together a set of draft articles on crimes against humanity, which are aimed at becoming the first ever multilateral convention on the crime. In 2019, the articles were adopted on second reading by the ILC, and they've now been referred to the General Assembly for consideration. And while these draft articles certainly cannot be considered existing treaty law in any way, uh, I did want to flag a couple of their provisions as potentially indicative of the general direction and possible scope of a future treaty-based duty to prevent. So the core preventive obligations for states arise in Draft Articles 3 and 4. Draft Article 3.2, which is up here, um, provides that each state undertakes to prevent and to punish crimes against humanity, which are crimes under international law, whether or not committed in time of armed conflict. So this provision is very clearly modeled on the Genocide Convention. And as one commentator put it, these are really twin provisions. And the fact that the obligation, uh, after extensive research, extensive comments period by states, was premised so clearly on the analogous provision in the Genocide Convention, is strongly suggestive that if adopted, these two provisions will be able to be regarded as being the same in content, scope, and nature. 
So if adopted, it's very likely that the same sort of due diligence, capacity to influence standard that applies to states for genocide would apply to crimes against humanity as well. But despite, or perhaps because of, its parallels in the Genocide Convention, during the ILC's submissions and comments period in 2018, a number of states expressed concern that their preventive obligations were very much unclear, and they requested further information on its scope. In the ILC's written commentary, uh, it noted that Draft Article 3 can be regarded as fixing the general obligation and that it would try to provide further detail on its content in Draft Article 4. So Draft Article 4 provides that each state undertakes to prevent crimes against humanity in conformity with international law through effective legislative, administrative, judicial, or other appropriate preventive measures in any territory under its jurisdiction, and B, through cooperation with other states and intergovernmental organizations and as appropriate other organizations. As for what kinds of preventive measures are envisioned, the commentary explains that while specific measures are always context dependent, the duty to prevent should include the adoption of national laws and policies to establish awareness of criminality and to promote earlier detection of risk. And I also want to bring your attention again to subparagraph B, which creates a duty of cooperation and prevention, which the commentary says arises from the UN Charter. Uh, last, let's quickly review the duty to prevent war crimes under treaty law. The core legal instruments governing uh, war crimes are, of course, the 1949 Geneva Conventions and their additional protocols, and the key provision for our purposes is Common Article 1. Common Article 1 requires that high contracting parties are required to both respect and ensure respect for the conventions. And it's really that ensure respect language on which the duty of prevention hinges. The prevailing view today is that Common Article 1 requires states to ensure respect for the Geneva Conventions by third states, including those which have not yet acceded to the Geneva Conventions. This was the view taken by the ICRC in its 2016 commentary to Common Article 1, which stated that Common Article 1 carries both positive and negative obligations of prevention. It prohibits high contracting parties from encouraging or assisting violations of the conventions, but it also requires them to proactively, positively, do everything reasonably in their power to prevent such violations. As with the duty to prevent genocide, the obligation is said to be one of due diligence. So according to the ICRC, its content depends on the specific circumstances, including the gravity of the breach, the means reasonably available to the state, and the degree of influence it exercises over those responsible. So again, note the parallels to the duty to prevent genocide and the centrality of the due diligence standard. So what about the customary international law basis for the duty to prevent? It is fairly accepted that there is a duty to prevent genocide and war crimes under customary international law, but it's arguably much more important that we find solid footing for the duty to prevent crimes against humanity, because as we said, there is no treaty basis yet for that obligation. 
There is some evidence of opinio juris supporting a customary international law basis for the duty to prevent crimes against humanity. This includes statements by the UN General Assembly that refer to an obligation of prevention, including its 1973 principles of international cooperation in the detection, arrest, extradition, and punishment of persons guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity, which says states shall cooperate with a view to halting and preventing war crimes and crimes against humanity, and shall take the domestic and international measures necessary for that purpose. There were also a number of statements made by states during the comments period to the ILC draft articles process as to what customary international law required of them, and a number of them issued surprisingly strong statements which could be potentially understood as opinio juris. There's also the ILC articles on the responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts. Of course, this isn't hard law, but it does set forth a positive obligation for states to cooperate, to bring to an end any serious breaches of an obligation arising under a peremptory norm of international law. So in light of the use Kogan's prohibitions against the commission of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, it would appear that this provision would create a duty to cooperate to end the commission of atrocity crimes. However, uh, cooperating to end crimes is conceptually distinct from cooperating to prevent them, and we're primarily concerned with the latter. We also have to consider where there's an emerging customary international law duty to prevent atrocity crimes as their own category, separate from the fragmented legal frameworks on the duty to prevent war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide as separate crimes. We have some new uh, emerging forms of state practice which are not yet consistent or widespread enough to support a customary law basis for this type of duty, but which perhaps someday could. Because while commentators often point to highly publicized instances of military intervention aimed at prevention, such as the NATO-led intervention in Libya, there's a lot less discussion or recognition around the quieter, more routine forms of state practice on prevention, such as the establishment of government offices, structures, and processes dedicated to atrocity risk and prevention. For example, for years, uh, an informal coffee group consisting of representatives of powerful states has met routinely to discuss atrocity prevention and to share intelligence about atrocity risk around the world. There are also a wide number of state-led national, regional, and global initiatives for atrocity prevention, which I've listed some of them here. And a large number of states have also designated national focal points to work on atrocity prevention pursuant to the R2P doctrine. These entities and offices regularly evaluate atrocity risk and assess preventive strategies. And they also engage in preventive measures, which may not make the news precisely for the reason that some of them at least may be successful. Indeed, this type of routine assessment of risk and preventive measures may provide a basis for finding an emerging state practice on atrocity prevention without distinction as to whether a crime constitutes genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes. So what can we conclude from our examination of the existing law on the duty to prevent? In my view, there's really two core problems with the current state of the law on the duty to prevent. First, we're told that it's an obligation of conduct, but we really have almost no idea what the correct course of conduct looks like. 
we know what the wrong course of conduct looks like. Obviously, states have failed in their preventive obligations if they commit atrocity crimes themselves or allow mass atrocities to occur within their borders. But the law is clear that states also have an extraterritorial duty to prevent, and we don't know what the prescribed course of conduct is for that specific obligation. So what short of force are states obliged to do? The second problem is enforcement. As we said, we have a treaty basis for the duty to prevent genocide and war crimes, but no such basis for crimes against humanity. This leaves a massive enforcement gap and means the failure to prevent crimes against humanity is not yet justiciable before the ICJ. It is hoped that the ILC draft articles would remedy this someday, but for now we have significant holes. However, even for genocide and war crimes, there are serious issues with respect to enforcement. We have never to date had a case where a state totally unrelated to a situation of mass atrocity is challenged before an international court for failure to prevent. The closest we have is the situation of the Gambia, which is a totally unrelated state, bringing claims that Myanmar failed to prevent. But the court has held that these are erga omnis and erga omnis partes obligations. So theoretically, on paper, any state could face a claim that it failed to prevent a situation of mass atrocity on the other side of the world if it was proven that they had the means available to them to help prevent it. Just because we haven't had that case yet doesn't mean that we couldn't. And so to sum up, my question is really not what is Myanmar's duty to prevent genocide, but what is the Gambia's? Many have suggested that the Gambia really went above and beyond by bringing this case before the ICJ, considering it's a tiny, unrelated third state on the other side of the world. But the ICJ held that it had standing, and I don't think it was making that finding to do the Gambia any favors. It found the Gambia had standing because these are issues of harm of such gravity that they affect all of us. And the Gambia has its own obligations and interests under the Genocide Convention and customary international law that were at stake. But states still seem to feel very, very secure in the notion that if you're in the Gambia, if you're in the UK, you're likely not going to face litigation for failure to prevent atrocities on the other side of the world in Myanmar. I don't think anyone is seriously concerned about that. You also have a selectivity issue where people would say, well, why would you single out the Gambia for failing to prevent over, say, the UK or Canada or the US or other states that presumably have significant capacity to influence but really haven't used that capacity for preventive purposes. Finally, because we aren't clear on what the correct course of conduct looks like, and don't seem to have actually internalized the notion that the duty is really owed by each and every state with capacity to influence, we can't challenge the failure to prevent until it's too late. What we need is a tangible way to manifest the duty to prevent before the commission of the crime, or else we will always essentially relegate the duty to prevent to being just another way to later place blame for commission rather than genuinely operationalizing prevention. So, what do I propose? One of the things that I've been looking at is how the notion of an environmental impact assessment could inform our understanding of the due diligence standard in the atrocity crime space. 
So while absolutely recognizing the diversity of contexts and legal frameworks in which the due diligence standard operates, I believe there are some persuasive reasons why the concept of an environmental impact assessment could be usefully imported and applied to the atrocity crime space. What I'd love to do is to receive your thoughts on whether there are additional legal or policy reasons why this might or might not make sense. Specifically, we've seen the centrality of the due diligence standard to the duty to prevent atrocity crimes, but the obscurity as to its content. This should prompt us to look outside the traditional realm to other legal contexts in which the standard has been further developed. As in the context of mass atrocities, International law, environmental law, posits that states have a duty to prevent and more specifically have an obligation to exercise due diligence in preventing significant transboundary environmental harm. To fulfill their due diligence obligation, states must first ascertain if there is a risk of significant transboundary harm and if so, they're required to carry out an environmental impact assessment or EIA. Pursuant to the ICJ's Pulp Mills opinion, an EIA is now considered to be a requirement under general international law, and due diligence and the duty to prevent would not be considered to have been exercised if a party planning activities that are liable to have a significant transboundary impact did not undertake an EIA on the potential effects of such works. The obligation to conduct an EIA began as a domestic practice originating in the United States back in the 1970s and has now expanded to more than 100 other domestic jurisdictions and is now reflected in a wide number of international instruments and treaties. At its core, the Environmental Impact Assessment Procedure is an effort to assess both, one, the nature and extent of risks posed by a given action and two, the preventive measures that may be put into place to avoid that risk from materializing. The ICJ has made clear that the specific content of an environmental impact assessment is left to the discretion of domestic jurisdictions, but an assessment must be completed prior to a project's implementation and have regard to both the nature and magnitude of the project and its likely adverse impact. Significantly, if an EIA confirms that there is a risk of significant transboundary harm, the state planning the activity is required under the due diligence obligation to notify and consult in good faith with affected states where that is necessary to determine the appropriate measures to prevent or mitigate the risk. As the ICJ declared in Pulp Mills, it is by cooperating that the states concerned can jointly manage the risks of damage and it is the obligation to inform other states that allows for the initiation of cooperation between parties, which is necessary to fulfill the obligation of prevention. As described by one commentator, the EIA procedure has enhanced environmental decision-making processes in at least four aspects. First, rationality. Second, sensitivity to environmental concerns. Three, transparency and four, accountability of environmental decision-making processes. As we've discussed, the atrocity crime space is in dire need of improvement in each of these areas. So in the last few minutes that remain, I want to describe the core function of what I'm calling uh, atrocity impact assessments, the triggers for undertaking them, and the need for such assessments to be public and transparent 
both for purposes of accountability and enhanced decision making. So specifically, when I say atrocity impact assessments, what I'm talking about is states undertaking a formal exercise aimed at assessing three things. One, is there a significant risk of atrocity crimes being committed? Two, the specific measures that can be undertaken to prevent that risk from materializing. And three, whether the state concerned has the capacity to actually undertake the measures required. In actuality, it's nearly impossible to conceptualize how states would undertake their, uh, already, the analysis that's already required under the due diligence standard without at least an informal exercise to this end. Naturally, uh, states can be, at least on paper, held responsible for failing to prevent atrocities to the best of their ability, so they need to be able to be consistently assessing each of these three things already the existence of risk, the need for prevention, and their own capacity. The atrocity impact assessment can be understood as the ex-ante analysis required to meet the due diligence standard to which states are held ex post facto. And indeed, some states are already undertaking analyses to this effect. So during the Obama administration, for example, the U.S. State Department and USAID developed what they called a joint atrocity assessment framework aimed at assisting decision makers to understand the dynamics that underpin a situation when there are indications of atrocity risk and to identify options to reduce that risk. The U.S. framework recommended identifying key actors to support preventive efforts, identifying both sources of grievances in a society and areas of social resiliency, as well as both triggers for atrocity risk and windows of opportunity for prevention. It suggested that any assessment should result in outputs, including recommendations for preventive action, and it would appear that similar assessments have been conducted by other states as well, particularly those participating in the coffee group that I mentioned, or other groupings focused on conflict stabilization and atrocity prevention. Such efforts, as I mentioned before, may even someday be regarded as early evidence of an emerging state practice supporting the customary duty of prevention. To date, however, these assessments have not, to our knowledge, been proposed or conducted as part of a formal, transparent process as part of states' preventive obligations under the due diligence standard, nor have they drawn upon the parallel assessment procedure in international environmental law. And I believe there's a number of factors which support the analogy. First, you'll recall that EIAs are prescribed where there is a risk of significant transboundary harm. In relation to atrocity crimes, although atrocities may or may not be transboundary in nature, the law is already clear that these are crimes of such gravity that their commission and prevention is of interest to all states. So I actually think the criteria regarding the transboundary nature of the risk is actually met in both cases. Second, in treaties requiring environmental impact assessments, like the Rio Declaration, the obligation to conduct an EIA is set forth after observing that states have common but differentiated responsibilities under international environmental law. This notion of common but differentiated responsibility bears a great deal of similarity to the interpretation of the due diligence standard according to capacity to influence. Both notions are premised on this idea that the protection of key interests is the responsibility of all states 
but the extent of responsibility is measured according to states' respective capacities. Finally, there's a number of parallels between the no harm rule, considered a cornerstone of international environmental law, and the principles underlying the duty to prevent atrocity crimes. Under the no harm principle, states have a duty to prevent or minimize harm to the environment, and the duty to conduct an EIA is widely considered to be part of the implementation of that rule. Similarly, in light of the nature of the harm caused by atrocity crimes, conducting an AIA can be considered part of the implementation of the duty to prevent. In addition, from a policy perspective, the practice of conducting an atrocity impact assessment would assist in further developing the law in at least two key respects. First and foremost, by deriving a procedural obligation from the duty to prevent, states would develop a practice of formal, routinized, transparent assessment of atrocity risk and their ability to prevent it, assessments which they are already required to undertake to avoid liability under the due diligence standard. By formalizing this process, the hope is that, as with environmental impact assessments, it would increase states' sensitivity to atrocity risk, increase transparency about their decision-making as to risk and prevention, and increase accountability. Second, in regards to transparency, it is practically imperative that states share information on the existence of atrocity risk and the need for preventive measures. There is no need to share sensitive internal intelligence as to how they got there, but as with EIAs, states should at least make transparent public findings regarding the existence of a serious risk of atrocity crimes. This is essential both in order to trigger collective preventive action and for purposes of enforcement. As we discussed, one of the biggest issues with the duty to prevent as it exists today is the inability to bring a challenge for failure to prevent until the bloodshed has already begun. By deriving a procedural obligation from the duty to prevent, we would have a tangible manifestation of the first step towards prevention, and failure to conduct an atrocity impact assessment could be regarded as the breach of an obligation which could be challenged. Such failures are regularly challenged in, regard to, as in relation to environmental impact assessment, and that type of litigation has actually been instrumental in shifting incentives and decision-making in favor of greater sensitivity to environmental consequences. The same would presumably be true as regards mass atrocities. So as I've said, this is still a developing concept which would benefit from your thoughts and feedback, and I'm extremely aware that the concept of an EIA has developed in a unique setting, but I'm also aware uh, that the possibility of an atrocity impact assessment has a lot of potential for further developing the law on prevention. Again, it's not posited that such an obligation yet exists, but that the duty to prevent could someday encompass a derivative procedural obligation to conduct an atrocity impact assessment, and that we already can and should be considering emerging, emerging state practices in this area. And in addition to discussing that proposal, I also would welcome discussions surrounding existing law on the duty to prevent and my assessment of the gaps in that framework. So thank you so much for your attention, and I look forward to the discussion. Yeah.